You could turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. Uh, to remind us of the context of this passage, I'd like to back up just a little bit and begin our reading at John chapter 13 and verse 31. At John chapter 13 and verse 31, and then we will read down through verse 6 of John 14. And John 14, 1 through 6 is the passage that we will be considering this morning. John chapter 13 Beginning at verse 31 is right after um, Judas Iscariot leaves the upper room in order to betray Christ. And we have uh, Jesus' words to his disciples. Uh, he predict, predicts uh, Peter's denial. And then we get into our text in John chapter 14. So, John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. Uh, here again, this is God's word. So, when he, that is Judas Iscariot, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews... Where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And then our text for today. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Well, we find ourselves once again back in the Gospel of John after having been away from it for a couple of weeks. And we pick up here at the beginning of John chapter 14, which is a, a very well-known, well-loved passage by many. I'm sure that many of you are aware that this is a passage that is frequently read and expounded upon at funerals, 
um, and memorial services and the like. But I hope that though this is a familiar passage to us, we will have new light shed upon it this morning, that we might appreciate it afresh and understand this passage even better than we have before, especially in, in light of its original context, which is often overlooked, and also in light of the fact that people don't always really understand what is meant in this passage very well. Now remember that we are still in the same place. On the same evening that we were all the way back at the beginning of John chapter 13. This is the night of all nights, right? The night in which Jesus would be betrayed. Jesus and his disciples had just moments ago partaken of an early Passover meal on this Thursday night. During this meal, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he instituted the Lord's Supper, and he made known to them that there was a betrayer in their midst. And you recall that after Judas Iscariot had left, Christ then felt freedom to be more intimate and more familiar with his disciples. And he will continue to do that for the next several chapters. But at the beginning of John chapter 14, we really do see a change in the condition and in the countenance of the disciples. And I really believe that if you were there, you would have seen this. And it's different than what we have seen up to this point. Because now they are overcome and overwhelmed by deep sadness. And this sadness will undoubtedly continue for the next couple of days until they finally see Christ um, after he is resurrected. And there was good reason for their despondency. Jesus had just told the disciples that one of them was going to betray him. And then each one was concerned that they were the guilty one. And you remember, they went around saying, is it I? Is it I? Am I the one? Then perhaps the greatest source of sorrow came when Jesus said to them, just a few verses earlier in this chapter, in verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. And I say this now to you as well. And this was extremely sad and confusing news for them. This was very hard to hear, and it weighed heavily upon them. It was one thing for Jesus to tell the crowds of people, right, that they would look for him and they would not find him anymore. But now Jesus is saying the same words to his 12 disciples, the ones who had been with him the last three years, day and night, almost 24-7. And they, they would look for him and not find him? This was perplexing news, heart-wrenching news, sobering news to them indeed. And this undoubtedly caused them to have a lot of questions in the back of their minds, which some of them will voice, as we will see. Now, of course, Christ had told them on many occasions before that he would end up being betrayed into the hands of sinners. We could even think of a passage like this from Matthew 16, 21, uh, which says this, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things. He told them this from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He told them over and over again, but they were so dull of hearing, weren't they? They couldn't get it. They didn't understand. They couldn't wrap their minds around this idea in light of who he was and what he had done. But on this Thursday evening, as Jesus began to tell them more emphatically that he would be leaving them and they would not find him, Peter was beginning to put two and two together. And so he says, Lord, where are you going? And when Jesus tells him, you cannot follow me now, Peter responds by saying, Lord, why can I not follow you? I, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. You see, Peter was realizing something at this moment. He was realizing something bad was going to happen very soon. And therefore, he mentions even defending Christ from those who would attack him. But then on top of everything else, there's a betrayer in their midst. He was going to be leaving them. Jesus tells Peter in front of all the disciples that on this very night, very far from laying down his life for Christ, he would actually end up denying him three times. And if Peter, if Peter would deny Christ three times, then what would happen with the rest of them? Peter was in many ways a leader of the disciples, an outspoken leader and probably the older than the rest of them. And we'll see his leadership position develop even more later in the book of Acts. And so you can imagine what the disciples are thinking. Is this just going to be the end of everything? Betrayal, denial, removal of Christ from their midst. All that happens on this very night. And it is in this context that Jesus says what we read at the beginning of John 14. And so the disciples are at a very low point, to say the least. Their world is coming crashing down upon them. They don't understand. They're confused. They're sad and despondent, overcome with despair. They were, they were in the midst of going through perhaps the greatest trial of their lives at this moment. And we've got, to, we've got to realize that. We have to understand that this is the context in which Jesus says these words. Maybe you can think about a time in your life where you were extremely at a low point, that you were sad and depressed and maybe the hardest trial that you've ever gone through. Some of you might have a harder time thinking about it. Others of you, it might come right away. This, this was the greatest trial that I ever faced in my whole life. Well, that's what they're going through now. Put yourself in their shoes. Because that's something like what the disciples are going through right now. They're sad and depressed. Now, we know the outcome, so it's so easy for us to just read through this and almost say, what, what, just stop it. What's wrong with you guys? Don't you know what's going to happen? Well, no, they don't. They don't understand that. And again, we must realize that it is in this context that Jesus, looking at them, seeing them in their despondency, seeing their countenances, seeing their, the sadness in their faces, he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. The word that is used there for trouble is a word that we have run into before in John's gospel. It's actually 
used by John most frequently to describe the trouble that filled Jesus' own soul. It is that word terasso, which again can be translated as deeply disturbed or terrified or troubled. Back in John chapter 12, when Jesus was gripped by the realization that his hour was soon upon him, and you remember the Greeks had come, and it was an indication that the time was near for the gospel to go to the Gentiles and for him to go to the cross. And he says in John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. And we looked at that verse before. Then in John chapter 13, when Jesus was again gripped by the fact that his hour had come and that there was one of the disciples who was just about to betray him, he again was troubled, it says in verse 21. Tarasso, that's the word in our text. And now it's the disciples' turn. They are troubled. And this is the first time that the Apostle John uses this word in reference to anyone else other than Jesus. They are greatly troubled. But you know, that actually kind of raises a question. If Jesus was troubled before, and understandably so, why does he tell them not to be troubled? Is Jesus being hypocritical at this point? It's okay for for me to be troubled, but you guys shouldn't be troubled. Is Jesus not practicing what he preaches? He was troubled. Why is he telling them not to be? Well, in the first place, we need to realize that Jesus is not necessarily accusing them of sin. Now, I'm not going to say that he is not accusing them of sin either. It's just not explicit. But just because he has concern for them and tells them not to worry doesn't necessarily mean that he is rebuking them. I think that a person can, fall, can, can, can be sorrowful and downcast and even troubled in their heart and not sin. But then, of course, there is sinful worry as well. But secondly, we also need to look at how a word like this is used in its context. We have to realize what John is doing here when he uses this word first in reference to Christ throughout his gospel, and then when he uses it in reference to the disciples. Because comparatively speaking, Christ was troubled over an entirely different matter. He was about to face the cross. He was about to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. He was on the verge of experiencing hell on behalf of his people. To not be troubled over something like that would actually call into question his true humanity, would it not? But Christ was troubled over something that we as believers never need to be troubled about. And that's the beauty of this passage. Because you see, the disciples didn't need to be troubled precisely because Christ was troubled for them. He was troubled. They need not be. What the disciples were facing at this moment, and whatever we face in this life, and I'm not meaning to minimize those things, but it is nothing, nothing compared to what Christ was about to face at the cross. If anyone had a right to be troubled ever, it was Christ at this moment. 
Jesus would bear the burden of our deepest and greatest troubles, the guilt and shame of our sin, death and hell. Christ knew what it was like to be troubled. And yet, and yet, instead of the disciples comforting him, he's comforting them. And if this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us what a selfless, compassionate, and caring Savior we serve. I mean, think about what he was about to go through. I'm sure that any one of us would not be thinking about anyone else or concerned about anyone else's needs but our own. And yet Christ is not like that. He's concerned for them. Here we see Christ is our compassionate, sympathetic high priest who is always concerned and always cares about what troubles us. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating, he knows what we face. He knows all that we go through. He's been through the worst of it. Nothing escapes his notice in the lives of his people, and he cares. Congregation, Christ cares. He cares, just as he was caring for the disciples at this moment. And he says to you, just as he said to them 2,000 years ago, let not your heart be troubled. Whatever it is that you face, whatever it is that you're going through, let not your heart be troubled. Now, lest I soften the words of Christ here too much, it is worth noting that in the Greek text, this statement is in the imperative Probably in your translations, you don't have an exclamation point. I don't have one in my Bible, but there is an exclamation point there, so to speak, in the Greek text. And thus, it is a command of the Lord to the disciples. There's an exclamation at the end of that sentence. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, at first glance, if you really think about it, this, if you really dwell on this, you almost, you almost, it almost seems like this is the worst advice that somebody could give to someone else, right? As one commentator at least pointed out, this would be considered from many quarters a bad example of counseling in our day. This goes against mainstream counseling and psychology 101. Just, just tell the person, don't worry. Don't be anxious, that's all you do. Don't be troubled. Well, that's really helpful. I mean, that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? I'm sure we have all experienced worry and anxiety that we just can't shut off. We, we, we can't even tone it down. It's just there. And we're anxious and we're worried and we're troubled. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, let me say a couple of things in response to that. For one, this command by Christ does teach us that there is hope, that we can and Christ calls upon us to overcome our troubled hearts by faith with the help of the Holy Spirit. You can learn to grow in this area and have greater victory, especially over sinful worry and anxiety. You don't have to be a victim of your emotions or your emotional state. Christ encourages us here. He encourages us to fight against being downcast to resist it, and to rise above it. But also, but also, we must realize that Christ doesn't stop here 
with this imperative. In fact, he will go on to counsel the disciples further. He will give them his wonderful words to calm their troubled hearts. And this is where we see Jesus as a master counselor, right? Nobody counseled as well as Christ did. I must admit that sometimes I have a tendency to just stop, right, at that statement. Well, just stop worrying. And, you know, just stop it. Don't be that way. And just leave it at that without any further biblical or godly or helpful counsel. But our Lord is far different. He tells us to stop, yes, but then he tells us how we can and why we should. He gives comforting and encouraging words to aid us in our trouble. And this reminds us that really there's a whole host of passages all over Scripture that can help with anxiety and worry, right? One of the most well-known is Philippians 4, 6, right? Uh, to not worry, be anxious for anything, but in all things by prayer and supplication. And so that's part of the answer. By praying, instead of worrying, we have a tendency to continue to worry instead of turning to prayer. But there's more than just that. And here we see further counsel for us. And so let's notice what he says next. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, this is a lot more than Jesus just saying, don't you trust me? Uh, if you believe in God, uh, are you not going to believe in me as well? There's a lot more than that here. No, Jesus is making a claim to deity, as he so often does in John's gospel. He is saying, you believe in God. You believe that God the Father exists, that he is who he says he is, and that he is what he claims to be in Scripture. You believe that he is the faithful God the covenant-keeping God, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You believe that he is the true and living God who cares for you and watches over you. Now you must believe in me the same because I am that God. You're looking at him, equal with the Father, co-eternal. I am all-powerful and sovereign just like the Heavenly Father. I will watch over you and protect you and bless you and keep you just like the Father. And he's saying, don't you guys get it? Do you, are you still not seeing who I am? Which shows their very inadequate view of the Trinity at this time. But what Jesus is saying is to truly believe in God the Father, you must also believe in me. And to believe in me as God is to believe in the Father as God as well. Thus, Christ was teaching his disciples, now listen, and us, that faith in God the Father and faith in God the Son are inseparable. Faith in God the Father and faith in God the Son are inseparable. To believe in the Father is to believe in the Son. To believe in the Son is to believe in the Father. And this will tie in with Jesus' I am statement later in verse 6. But just think how in this, and with one fell swoop, Christ just demolishes all other religions in the world. Any religion that has any hope of actually believing in God, he just cuts it down. 
How many there are out there that would say that, well, Jews and, and Christians and Muslims and, and others as well, they at least have all this one thing in common. They, they believe in the same one true God. And if they disagree about Christ, then they still have this one thing in common. And how many are there out there in the world that say they believe in God? But when you ask them what they think about Christ or if they believe in Christ, they don't know or they're not sure or they flat out reject him. And you see, the Apostle John is reminding us here that this was the great sin of the Jews in Jesus' day and especially of the religious leaders. You see, John is writing with the Jews as a whole and especially the religious leaders in mind. Of course, they believe in God. Of course, they believe in the Father. They believe in the God of Moses. And here Jesus is saying, deep down, they don't. They don't. They don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Jesus is saying here is you can't believe in God and you don't believe in God unless you believe in me at the same time, and I'm going to take it even a step further, and at the same moment that you believe in me. You believe the same moment as being Christ, being one with the Father as well. To be justified by faith in Christ is also to believe in the Father who sent him at the same time. Truth-saving faith believes into Christ and into the Father at the same time. And that's how I love how John lays this out, and I've told you this before. What he actually says in Greek is into. Jesus says, you believe into God. Believe into me also or as well. The focus is placed in many places in Scripture on believing in Christ alone as he is the mediator. But in back of him is always the person and work of the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. And that's why to deny the Trinity is heresy. And that's why in our covenant of communicant membership, you are asked, do you believe in the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the scriptures. And so Christ says to his disciples, you believe in God the Father. You must also believe in me as being the same God who has this whole situation that you are so worried about under control, under my sovereign and complete control. He counsels them with the reality of his sovereignty over all things. In fact, Christ is saying, your safety and salvation are so secure, Jesus says, that I am going to prepare a place for you in heaven. But I think that we can derive from this how important is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, understanding the sovereignty of God, especially when it comes to worry and anxiety and the troubles that fill our minds and our hearts. The more we will get grounded and rooted, this is what Jesus gives them. He gives them his sovereignty over everything. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. In verses 2 and 3, we read this. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And we just sit back and say, wow, what comforting words. Jesus knows how to counsel. Can you imagine if Jesus told you personally that I've got a place reserved in heaven for you? It's got your name on it. It's safe and secure, and you're going to be with me one day there. You know, there are many other similar passages that speak about the second coming of Christ. They may speak about it as a a day of judgment or as a day of vindication and of glorification, and all those things are very important. But here the focus is on the comfort and security that is brought at the second coming of Christ, being in the very dwelling of God's presence in his house forevermore. And our minds are immediately drawn, aren't they, to Psalm 23, which we read earlier, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there are a few things that we should take careful note of in this verse, because it is, I think, often misunderstood. Probably the most difficult and confusing word in this verse that should be explained, especially as we have our New King James uh, Bible's translations before us, is the word mansion, which is also in the King James Version. It seems very strange, don't you think, to speak of there being mansions in a house. I remember that as a, chi- you know, as a younger child thinking, what, this doesn't make any sense. In my father's house are many mansions, you see. Because a mansion in our modern way of thinking and speaking usually is a very big house. But then even if we think about the father's house being heaven, we still get this idea that we should be looking forward to each one of us having our own home or our own mansion to live in forever. And that is all very misleading because that is not what is meant by this verse. And it's really not the best translation for our day to translate it, mansion. And even if you have um, a critical edition of the New King James Bible, you might see in the margins uh, how that word can also be translated differently. The word translated mansion in the Greek is monet, and it can also be translated simply as a room or a lodging or an abode or a dwelling place. The basic meaning here is most likely just a dwelling place. But in the Old English, are you listening? In the Old English, the word mansion just meant a dwelling place. And so it makes sense for in olden days when they would translate this word to use the word mansion because it was used and it was understood simply as a dwelling place. But that's not how the word is really used by us today. At least I don't. talk of it in that, that way. But what Jesus is basically saying here is that in my Father's house, in heaven, there are many dwelling places. I think the English Standard Version translates it as rooms, which I think would be better than mansions. But the point is that there are many places to dwell. And the main point that Jesus is making is that there is plenty of room. The focus is not so much on the dwelling place, although that's also there. 
but it is on the fact that there are many dwelling places. There is plenty of room for all who will ever believe in him to be there. In heaven, you will never be shut out because there just isn't enough space. As one commentator put it, heaven is as wide as the heart of God. And you have to realize how the disciples are thinking and how Jesus is trying to correct their thinking because they are thinking in earthly physical terms. There are earthly places that do get filled up. An earthly house can become overcrowded. Perhaps you have experienced this, especially you know, after you get married and you start to have kids or you start to have more kids. This place is too small for us. We need a bigger place. There are a lot of places on earth that run out of space. Um, Not too long ago, I can't remember if it was our last Presbytery meeting, I had to get a hotel that was quite a ways away from the church in which we were having the Presbytery meeting because all the hotels around it were filled up. And so we had to get a place further um, away. Of course, there weren't that many hotels around it in the first place, but that was the best I could do because they were filled up. When Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, There was no room for them in the inn. And isn't that very and and very interesting point? That God says, there's plenty of room for all of you, but when God himself comes to earth, there's no room for him in the inn. But in God's house, there are no limitations of space. You know, people talk about how even this world, right, liberals, We'll try to argue that, you know, we're becoming overpopulated. There's too many people, and they use it for justification for abortion. But I'm sure you've heard that, right, everyone in the United States could actually fill, you know, fit in the state of Texas. Now, we'd only get a quarter of an acre of land, but technically speaking, if you just look statistically at at the population and how many acres there are in Texas, it's conceivable at least. But, you know, if everybody in the U.S. can fit in Texas, then certainly... Certainly, there's plenty of room in heaven for every believer who would go there. But we have to get past this idea that we each have our own mansion or our own amazing dwelling place. And whoever has the greatest reward will have the biggest mansion, right? We'll have the biggest house. Now, I'm not saying that's not possible at all. But, but that is not meant by this passage. When we think that way, we are thinking in a far too earthly-minded way. And we don't understand the power and the abilities of our future glorified bodies. Do you think that Christ, in all of his glory, cares about something the equivalent of this huge home or mansion? Do you think Christ cares about that? Does he need that? No. And neither will you. Not in a glorified body that you'll receive like his. But you will want to dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth forever. In fact, there is something else to consider about our heavenly home in the greater context of this passage. The Greek word in our text for mansion or dwelling place, as I've already said, is the word monet. That word is only used in one other place in the whole New Testament, and it's used later in this chapter, in verse 23. In John 14, 23, we read this. 
Jesus answered and said to him, that is Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple, Judas. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home, Monet, our dwelling place with him, in him. Here, the believer's body is the dwelling place of God himself, which will become far more real after Christ ascends into heaven and pours out the Holy Spirit, which is what he's talking about here. And then even more real when we enter into glory and God indwells us in a way that he never has before. But the believer's body is considered here a dwelling place. And so could it be that there is an indication here that the believer's new glorified body will be his dwelling place in heaven? Just a thought for you to consider. We have to remember, think about this, this image. In my father's house, what, what is... What is what does God's house refer to in other places in Scripture? The church, in my Father's house, in the church on earth, but then also especially in this context, in eternal glory, the church, in my Father's house. There are many dwelling places. But in any case, the comforting message is the same. Christ has gone to prepare a place for you and me that we would be with him forever. He has made the way possible for us to be with him. Now, many also misunderstand what Jesus means when he says that he goes to prepare a place for us. People often have the image in their minds of Christ going up to heaven and then arranging what kind of a mansion we will have, right? He's looking down at our good works. Oh, I'll give, I'll give Ryan this smaller mansion and I'll give you know this person over here a huge mansion and, and then he's going in and he's he's saying well you know this person likes this kind of a bed and we'll get this kind of a couch and this kind of a kitchen table that's I mean that's kind of like the image that we have in our mind right but again that is not at all what is meant here in fact there is a sense in which Heaven has already been prepared for us. We might almost ask, why is Jesus bringing this up now? Isn't that what it says in other places of Scripture? Think about what Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, that is the sheep, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's been prepared from, from the foundation of the world. No, it's not what Christ is talking about. Christ is not going to prepare a place for us in the way that we might think. Christ instead is going to do something very specific. He is going to make a way to heaven, to make heaven even accessible for guilty sinners through his atoning work on the cross. As D.A. Carson put it, the words of Jesus here presuppose that the place we will go to exists before Jesus even gets there. It is not that he arrives on the scene and then begins to prepare the place. Rather, it is the going itself by means of the cross and the resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. In other words, 
Jesus is going to the cross to prepare us a place, to secure a place for you and me in heaven. In Hebrews 6.20, Jesus is said to have entered heaven as our forerunner. Hebrews 9.12 says this, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place in the heavenlies once for all, having obtained our eternal redemption. But you know, perhaps the most touching thing that Jesus says about preparing a place for us is at the end of verse 3, when he says, I will come again and will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, Jesus is telling his disciples that I'm not going there for myself. I'm not going there by myself to be there by myself. The whole reason I came here is so that I could bring you back with me into glory. There's plenty of room, and I'm taking you with me. I'm taking you there. This was Christ's great mission, his great purpose, not to just simply die on the cross and rise again. That was just a means to an end. And it's not just to give us eternal life either, but it was to bring his people to himself, to be with him forevermore. And that's the great joy of heaven, to be with Christ. It matters not what else what heaven is like. Christ is enough, more than enough, more than you could ever want or need. And I ask you, congregation, is that how you view heaven? When you think of heaven now, I, want, I, I, can, I can understand thinking of one another and, and, and people, especially the loved ones that we've lost, and seeing them again. I'm not, I'm not you know, speaking against that or, or downplaying that. But our thoughts should be ultimately drawn to the fact that Christ is there and that we want to be in heaven because that's where Christ is. Because he is at our all in all, you see. Or could it be, could it be that if you were to think about heaven and the main purpose is to be there with Christ, is it, or is it possible that you think in the back of your mind without telling anybody else that maybe I'd just rather be here on earth with the, all the other things that I love and enjoy, right? It's an excellent test of the spiritual state of your soul, of whether you are a true believer or not. But congregation, I hope that the thought of this passage is just thrilling your heart right now, for God has prepared a place for you. Just as Christ told his disciples in the upper room 2,000 years ago, so he's telling you right now, it's there. It's reserved in heaven for you. I've gone through the cross. I've prepared the place, and it's reserved for you, and it will be your eternal home with me. You know, time on this earth is so short. We think about how time in comparison to eternity is like a snap of the fingers. We've got to realize where our real home is. But do you see how Christ was bringing comfort to the disciples' despondent hearts? What an excellent counselor he was and is. He was showing them that while there may be legitimate reasons for their hearts to be troubled in this life, there are even far greater reasons for our hearts not to be troubled. 
Sinclair Ferguson said of this passage, Jesus was teaching his disciples that no matter what happens on this earth, the single biggest issue in life has already been settled. Our final destination in the Father's house. That's settled. That's taken care of. And thus, I think this passage teaches us on the basis of Christ's counsel here that we do not think about our eternal heavenly home nearly enough, do we? Not nearly enough. Our thoughts are taken up far too much with our homes here and the concerns and the circumstances of this life. Not that we should forget about them because we always need to have an eye to them as well. But I don't think we consider and dwell on our eternal abode. You know, when I was a teenager, I was in the middle of high school. This is up in Rockford, Illinois, where I was brought up. And uh, my parents were bought a new home. We were going to be moving to the other side of town. But for a period of time, we were kind of like in between, and we had like two homes. We had to get the new home ready and prepared to be able to live in. And then we had to get the old house ready and prepared to sell. And so we had two homes at once, and sometimes I was even sleeping in one or the other because we had two at one time. But you see, and it felt like I had one foot in one house and one foot in the other. But my trajectory, my focus, my goal was living in that new home. That is what I anticipated. That's what I looked forward to. It was a bigger bigger home, a better home, a better part of town. My parents were preparing and we were planning on living in this new place. And that's what I thought about. Even when I was in the old home, I was always thinking about the new home. And is that not how we should be thinking about heaven? One foot on the earth and one foot in heaven, looking forward, anticipating, being in our eternal home, which is timeless, eternal, compared to this life, which is a snap of a finger, you see. Now, to some degree, Jesus had taught the disciples at least some of this before, hadn't he? He indicates this when he says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you by now, but I haven't. I've told you differently. I've told you this before. And the fact that they knew this before is also confirmed by what Jesus says next in verse 4. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. In other words, I've told you this before. You have believed in me. You know the way to heaven. It's through me. But Thomas, 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 Thomas. At the very least, he's pessimistic here. And he blurts out in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas was still so earthly-minded like the rest of them. He could only think in terms of what was happening at that moment, and he had a hard time lifting up his head, lifting up his eyes to the eternal glory, future glory, that Jesus was talking about. And I trust that that is a problem we can all have at times as well. But he was only thinking in natural, material, physical terms. He wanted specifics, not generalities, like we often do. We want to know exactly what's going to happen to us, how long we are going to live, or how we're going uh, to get to where we're going, or how we're going to die. But I also think that he was just overcome 
by, by the trial of the moment that he wasn't really able to hear very well what Jesus was telling him. And so on the surface, his, his question, as others have pointed out, not just me, his question seems almost kind of dumb. I don't want to be too overly critical because I probably would have done the same thing. But as one pre uh, preacher put it, one of the reasons the disciples asked some of the dumbest questions, which they did at times, was so that Jesus would have the opportunity to give us some of the most profoundest of answers. It was that kind of a question that led Jesus to make that awesome declaration. I mean, Thomas just totally set Jesus up here for this answer, didn't he? And you can almost just see Jesus anticipating Thomas's question and being excited about the answer he's about to give. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an answer, what a response. This was the sixth of Jesus's seven well-known I am statements in John's gospel. And of course, we've looked at the previous five before. And here again, we have Jesus making a claim to deity. He uses that same Greek phrase that we've talked about before, ego, eimi, I am. The Greek translation of what God told Moses from the burning bush, tell them that I am has sent me, has sent you to them. Now, as with the other I am statements in John's gospel, this one as well is meant to convey the self-sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Christ as the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. He is the self-existent one upon which everything else in the universe depends. He is the bread of life, the light of the world. He is the door or the gate of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life, and he is the way and the truth and the life. Now, these three, the way, the truth, and the life, do go together. Some have seen something even of a progression in them. That first, Christ is the way. That's the way that you are to take when you begin a journey. You must begin this way, Right? And so he is the way. But then secondly, he is the truth that you must follow on the way. And then third, he is the life, the only way to true life, endless life, eternal life, resurrection life. Now, whether that progression is exactly the case or not, as others have also pointed out, there does seem to be a priority given to the way first. Because that is in direct answer to Thomas's question. How can we know the way? And Jesus' response is, first, I am the way. Thus, it appears that Jesus is the way precisely because he is the truth and the life. There can be no other way. But it is also important to note that these three terms or ideas dominated Jewish thinking and the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. Over and over again, we're confronted with the way or the truth or the life. These were all things that were known to be true of God. His law and word was the way. He was, the, he was true and the giver of truth. He was the source of life. Think about some of these Old Testament passages. I'll just give you a couple of them. 
The psalmist writes in Psalm 27, Teach me your way, O Lord. Or Psalm 1, verse 6, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Jeremiah 6, 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the way and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. Isaiah 65, 16, So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants shall live, that you may love the Lord your God, and that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life. You hear that? For he is your life and length of days. And so Jesus, again here, is equating himself with the Father who gave himself in the Old Testament as the way and the truth and the life already before. And in thinking of the priority of Jesus as the way in this context, the law of Moses was known as halakha. The law of Moses was called halakha, the way. And thus Christ was saying, I am the halakha. I am the law or the word of God made flesh, right? Hearkening back to John chapter 1. I am the embodiment of the word, the living word. I am the way. I am the truth, the very embodiment of truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through me. I am the life, the true life, self-sustaining, self-existent life, and thus the only hope of resurrection life. And so Jesus brings these ideas together in the, in, the, in the minds of the Hebrew of these important concepts and ideas of God as the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's God in the flesh saying this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am that God that you know of and have read about. There is no other way to heaven. And therefore, how arrogant it is of people to contradict this statement by Christ, to think that there is another way when God in the flesh has appeared and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To think that they can make another way for themselves to get to heaven. It's incredible. When you read and study some of the people out there, supposed theologians and scholars who try to get around this verse, right? Who don't want to be so exclusive. And, and they say the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Well, he's just saying he is our way. No, he's saying he is the way. And there is no other way. And they twist it so it's not so exclusive. But if God says this is the only way, that Christ himself is the only way, then who are we to say anything differently? As one person said, do you think that if God could have found another way, he would have taken it? If there, was, if there was another way, if there was another way to eternal life, if there was any other way, don't you think God would have taken it over sacrificing his son on the cross? 
Who are we and who are others to say, oh, we'll find another way when this unbelievable, incomparable way has been made for us to get to heaven through Christ? It's the only way. Congregation, have you embraced the way and the truth and the life? Do you view him as the only way? Are you following him on the way? I trust that you have embraced Christ as the only way because there is no other. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've brought to us this morning. We're thankful, Lord, to be brought face to face with Christ's own comfort and care for his disciples and for us and to be reminded that he is the great I am, the way and the truth and the life. We pray, O Lord, that if there are any in this room who have not truly embraced Christ in that way, as the way, that, Lord, you would work in their hearts and that you would draw them to yourself. Help us, O Lord, to be counseled and comforted through your word and through the scriptures, to be a blessing to others as we follow Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And may, O Lord, we even have opportunity to share that way with others as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.